as a boy growing up on the East Coast, many of my childhood memories are of days at the Jersey Shore playing in the surf and in the sand and sun. Well, I guess you don't play in the sun, but you play in it in a different way. But I remember that often. The water was the main attraction to me, but you had to warm up once in a while, and that taught you how to deal with sandcastles. There wasn't a lot else to do, and we spent a lot of time doing that. You can't build your castle where the sand is dry. You cannot build it in the direct path of the tide. So you build your sandcastle somewhere in between where the sand is just moist enough to be moldable. But it is moist. And it's moist because you're still within the reach of the water. So what do you do? You know that there may be an advanced wave that endangers your castle, so you pile up a series of walls around it with sand. And you dig a moat around the castle, and you create some channels that take the water back if it does come up there, and get this all prepared to protect your castle. And inevitably, that rogue tentacle of seawater advances on your position, it overwhelms your defenses, it swamps your castle, leaving behind shapeless mounds of drenched sand as it returns to the sea. When building castles on the shore, encroaching waves is much the fun. I always found that probably more fun than the actual building of the castle, because I'm not very artistic. But when we think of that scene, protecting our castles from the advancing waves, it really pictures our lives, and it pictures the presence of sin, doesn't it? Sin and weakness and trial play much the same way, advancing upon our castles, but then it's no fun. It's no fun at all. It's wearying, this continual surging of trials and troubles and the presence of sin. We face erosive invasion against everything we try to build that is good in this world. The waters of disease and physical malady surge against the sandcastle of our physical health. Every once in a while coming in or perhaps even swamping our position. We work to build a solid financial position, but unanticipated expenses and economic trials nibble away at the foundations of wealth. We labor to build a solid family, but sin and failure repeatedly swamp our seawalls and overwhelm our exit channels. It just keeps happening. We labor as God's people and by His grace to carve out a church family that is spiritually healthy. But we find ourselves scooping away the invasion of sin and heartache over and over again. As individuals, we seek to honor God. But we must repeatedly address the rogue waves of sin and despair that wash up against our souls. We've spoken of that this morning in these words of confession that we have uh, shared together. It's not every day, it's not all the time, but repeatedly some sin or trial swamps the good castles that we try to build. And it's unrelenting, it's, it's wearying, it is ceaseless task. 
And this is the reality that plays out so vividly in the books of the Chronicles as they chronicle the rule of the kings of Judah. Good kings labor hard against sin and idolatry, seeking to rule in a manner that honors God, carving out a position for the kingdom that is honoring to the Lord. But inevitably, along comes another king, or two, or three, who swamps everything that was gained. Breaking covenant with God. Choosing idolatry. Relying on the armies of God's enemies by turning their back on the Lord. Over and over again. In recent weeks, we've been looking at the reign of King Josiah. He edifies and renews the kingdom of God. He ends the pagan worship. He goes through the land and tears down the altars. He honors the word of the Lord. He restores the temple, taking out all of the idolatrous trappings that were therein. He cleanses it. He purifies it. He reestablishes the worship of the Lord. He begins to obey the word again. Passover is again celebrated in Jerusalem. And in a grand way. But that rogue tentacle of seawater comes in, doesn't it? And it swamps his castle. In a rare moment of not depending on the Lord, he refuses to hear the word of the Lord concerning Pharaoh, Nico. Takes him on, thinking God will deliver him, and dies in battle. At the height of his power, Josiah has a lapse in moral judgment. And he dies a gruesome death at Megiddo. What will happen now? We come to chapter 36. I invite you there. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. What will happen now? What will happen to the castle of covenantal fidelity that Josiah has built? There's always hope the next kings will follow Josiah's godly example. He had this lapse at the end of his life of perhaps his sons. Perhaps his sons. We look at the reign of several individuals today that kind of come in staccato fashion here at the end of Second Chronicles, and there's so much to that that is artistic and beautiful and sending its own message in the original text. But they come to a quick end, and it's not pretty. We look at the reign of Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, beginning there at verse 1 of chapter 36. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign. Now, Jehoahaz is Josiah's third son, ironically, and it's very unusual. The oldest, Johanan, apparently died in childhood, but the second son, Eliakim, was passed up for this position by the people. We don't know why, but it really doesn't matter because Jehoahaz reigns only for the length of time that it takes Pharaoh Necho to get back down south to, to Egypt. That's the three months, and that's all the longer it lasts. You remember from last week, and I point over here, Egypt in this range, Pharaoh Necho goes up through the land, and it's here at Megiddo where Josiah seeks to stop him and is killed. Pharaoh Necho continues north up to Carchemish. Why Carchemish? The Babylonian Empire is gaining great strength. 
It has moved against the Assyrian Empire and defeated Ashur. It moved up then to the capital and defeated Nineveh. It pushed the Assyrian army to Haran. They abandoned Haran and they settled in at Carchemish, standing against this invasion of Babylon to the north and to the west. So at this point, Pharaoh Necho comes up from the south after the skirmish with Josiah and Josiah's death, taken back to Jerusalem where he is buried. Pharaoh Necho continues up north and fights with the Assyrian army against the Babylonian army. It does not go well for Pharaoh Necho. His army is crushed there at that place. Just remembering again from uh, last week, and Josiah's lapse as the army continued up this way northward. He had probably came down this central ridge and came into the valley of Megiddo and stood at that pass and said that Pharaoh Necho was not going to advance any further. Uh, a picture of this plain and what the intention was at Megiddo Pass through that mountain range to this valley where the army could make fast journey upwards to Carchemish, Josiah dies in battle, a gruesome death. So we are now at Carchemish is over. The battle has been lost by Pharaoh Necho. He comes back down south with his army and will cut across here most likely to Jerusalem where he uh, has some business to take care of. And licking his wounds is not a happy camper as he gets back to Jerusalem and deals with Jehoahaz, who has taken up Josiah's position. You can imagine Pharaoh Necho's not real happy with Josiah and with his family. And he says, you're not going to do this. You're not going to put this man on the throne. So Jehoahaz, 23 years old, when he begins to reign, the middle of verse 2 says that he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. That's while Necho is to the north. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Surprisingly, the author does not, even step, does not even stop long enough to tell us whether Jehoahaz was a good king or a bad king. He was indeed an evil king. He taxed his subjects to meet Pharaoh Necho's demands, but he made sure that most of the revenue stayed with him, and he lived lavishly while his nation struggled. He also perverted justice. He abused the poor, according to the prophet Jeremiah. But by avoiding all of that, the chronicler seems to say, in a sense, it doesn't matter. He is a weak, ineffectual king. He cannot even stand up to Pharaoh Necho, who's coming back wounded, his army broken. He cannot even stand up to him. 7,500 pounds of silver and 100 pounds of gold is the tribute he must pay. So King Josiah's son is seen as a pushover who fails to draw on God's intervening power. Remember Hezekiah standing up against the Assyrian army at its greatest height and strength doesn't win the battle with a sword, but he wins the battle by depending upon the Lord. Jehoahaz does not depend upon the Lord at all, does not seek God's help, does not seek God's wisdom, and he's not even able to stand up against Egypt, which at that point, again, was hurting. But in place of Jehoahaz, as Pharaoh Necho comes back through, verse 4, 
The king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. From Eliakim to Jehoiakim is a very small change. From God raises up to Yahweh raises up. But by claiming naming rights, what is Pharaoh saying? Uh, He is unmistakably in charge. I deposed your brother. I put you on the throne. I gave you your name. And you exist to bring me tribute. Let's get this all straight. This is Pharaoh's message as he heads back south to Jehoiakim now, who was raised Eliakim. As Jeremiah had prophesied, Jehoahaz will die in Egypt, left behind to mine the store for Necho. Josiah fails to lead, or Josiah's son also fails to lead the nation to faithfulness. And we look then at the reign of this son, Jehoiakim who was Eliakim, verse 5 and following. Jehoiakim was 25 years old. So you notice there he's older than the brother that preceded him. 25 when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. From 609 until the end of 598, Jehoiakim's godless leadership is yet another surge against God's earthly kingdom. Jehoiakim fails to obey God's word, fails to depend upon the power of the Lord. And so, as Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied for years, verse 6, against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. If you can see the map again, it's not difficult to understand as Babylon has been pushing through these Assyrian uh, strongholds. And then meeting not only the Assyrian Empire, what was left of it, but also the Egyptian Empire here at Carchemish, there's really nobody to stop Babylon any longer. And so Nebuchadnezzar pushes down through to the land and will be taking a trek back and forth between the two from Babylon to Jerusalem for some time to come, as we will see. And in 605, Babylon's first invasion of the land takes place. Uh, Here in verse 6, he takes Jehoiakim, because Jehoiakim has been placed on the throne by Egypt, so Babylon says that's not going to happen. And Nebuchadnezzar not only takes that king bound back in chains to Babylon, but notice verse 7, he also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. As you read about these vessels, I encourage you, I, I trust you're reading through the Bible. You're learning to read it and learning to put it together. These vessels are important. They're very important in the text and the narratives that unfold. Notice them, watch them, even trace them. It's very interesting to see what happens with these vessels. And when you think vessels, we kind of think of vessels, if it's not a ship, then it's a bowl or a cup or something like that. But here, vessels includes utensils and items in the worship of God. These things are being pulled out of the temple. They are holy vessels. They belong to the glory and to the name of God. But the Babylonian king puts his hands on them and brings them to himself and carries them off to Babylon. This is highly symbolic and significant. 
They symbolize, these vessels, God's kingdom and the true worship of Yahweh at His temple. But now they're in Babylon. And what happens when they're there? Nebuchadnezzar takes them to his palace, to his places of worship, distributes them there. Belshazzar, his grandson, will drink in a wild drinking party from some of these vessels. And ultimately, in Ezra 1 and verse 7, these vessels make their way back to the land, which is a time of rejoicing and celebration. But for now, as the prophets of God foretold, Parts of Judah are making their way east across the Fertile Crescent to Babylon. This is a dark, dark day. The nation has been swamped. Verse 8, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. No record of death. Again, a slight by the author on this man and his unimportance in the history of Israel. This leads us to Jehoiachin, verse 9. Jehoiachin in the reign um, following the 11-year reign of Jehoiakim. This is Josiah's grandson, Jehoiachin. He's 18 years old, we see in verse 9, when he began to be king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Three months is simply the time Jerusalem was under siege by the Babylonians. You kind of get a theme here. These conquering kings want to make sure they're the one who cho- chooses the king. It might even be a guy that's in the royal family, but they're going to be the one who chooses. And that happens again here. March 597, Jehoiachin's reign ends, and he's hauled off to Babylon the very next month. Verse 10 in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord. There they are again. There's more vessels that are taken back to the land of Babylon. More vessels that leave the promised land and their position in the worship of God. Hauled off to Babylon. And then, verse 10b, he made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Now, the word brother here is problematic to us in English. I think it would be better to translate it uncle. Uh, This is then the third son of Josiah and the uncle of Jehoiachin. And Zedekiah will bring all of this story to a close. Perhaps there's hope with this last son of Josiah, we would naturally think. Josiah has done so much to bring the nation back to God. Now two sons have failed. A grandson has failed to seek the Lord and his aid. Now Zedekiah. What will be the case with this last son of Josiah? Verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah's the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. There it is. And there's a world of truth there. He didn't listen to the prophet. He didn't listen to the voice of God. This again is the condemnation of so many of the kings. Josiah died foolishly when he disregarded God's word in the mouth of a pagan king. That was bad. But Zedekiah despises God's word in the mouth of a prophet of God. That is far worse. 
So with stiff neck and hard heart, God's king who is to mediate and model fidelity to God's covenant with his people, this one is living in rebellion against the Lord. There is the word of God which dictates terms, or there's my own heart desires that dictates terms. And Zedekiah said, I will listen to myself. I will not heed the word of the Lord. And this is his legacy that is left behind. Not only did he rebel against God, verse 13, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, by stiffening his neck against Nebuchadnezzar, God did not give him high grades. He told him to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. It was over. The nation was going to go to Babylon. The discipline of God was going to fall. The the castle would be swamped. And fighting against Nebuchadnezzar was indeed fighting against God for Zedekiah, as the prophets made so clear to him. Verse 14, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. This is just a heavy statement, isn't it? Our hearts thrill and rise when we think of Josiah and his reforms and what he is doing to stand for God against so much history against him and the pagan powers that surround him and the godless in the land who want to worship the gods of the nations. But all the reforms of Josiah were apparently just external. He did the right thing in that setting at that time It was his job to impose the right worship, but it was only skin deep. You get people to do a lot of things when they get around others and are influenced by a crowd. But you find out where a soul is really at when it gets isolated from that godly influence and comes under the influence of godless people. This is who Israel has become This is who they are. They polluted the house of the Lord. The house where God had chosen to place His name to identify all the planet where His glory would be most seen, they took that house and they converted it into something that spoke of the glories of the gods of the pagans. They polluted it. He had made it holy. They had made it vile. Verse 15, at this break we come now into the Lord's response. Verse 14 is a sad, sad note, a sad development that reminds us of God's jealous desire for His people to find their joy in Him alone. God longs for our devotion He does not long for our devotion so that we will supply something that's lacking in Him. That He needs our compliments. That He needs our worship. That He somehow feeds and finds pleasure in our exalting His name because there's something lacking in Him. God longs for our devotion because He is our Heavenly Father who loves us. And He knows that we are, that He is the ultimate source of our joy and strength. 
There's really no parallels for this in this world. We could look at parents as they relate to children and say, it's right and good for parents to direct their children to honor them, to relate to them, and to love them because it's what's best for those kids. But as we do that, we are not the source of their ultimate joy. So there really is no parallel in this world as there is with God and His people who longs for devotion because it's only in absolute devotion that we will find our joy in who He is and see Him for who He is. He hates idolatry because everyone who chases idols is heading for destruction. He alone is the source of goodness. And He alone, and in Him alone, there is no flaw or sin. So I think with heavy heart, God responds. We see His response in verse 15 is first of all a response to Judah's sin with prophetic calls to repentance. He works the nation over. He has been for generations. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words, scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord, notice the phrase, it rose against His people until there was no remedy. Like a wave rising against their castle, there was nothing to stop it. There's a certain place where the warnings of God become lies if He doesn't act upon them. And there's a certain place where God ceases to be a God of justice and responsibility if He does not act against sin and rebellion. And for Israel, that day had come. And this is the God of Scripture. This is not the God of the Old Testament who's a bad God, who just gets mad at everybody compared to the God of the New Testament, who's so kind and gentle. It's the same God, working out His same purposes the same way. But why do we, when we hear that argument, the God of the Old Testament is God of anger and wrath and judgment, why do we not read verse 15? He persistently sent to them His messengers because He had compassion on His people. He had compassion on his people. But there is a day when God must display his wrath. And this day had come for Israel. After generations of persistent warning, the day had come. And so secondly, God responds to Judah's sin with judgment. First with prophetic calls to repentance, but now with judgment. Verse 17, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, read between the lines, old man or aged, read between the lines, he gave them all into his hand. It wasn't pretty. The wrath of God came in the form of an enemy invasion of the land, and it was a nasty ordeal. Judah did not respond to the compassionate, long-suffering grace of the Lord. She continued to want the gods of this world. 
And as Babylon came into the land, God gave Israel what she wanted. People who worship other gods do not live in love and selflessness. They take and they harm and they hate. And that's what Israel got. She got exactly what she'd been demanding for so long. Verse 18, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Apparently, just didn't have room for it in each of these trips. He's just piling more gold, silver, bronze vessels together. And we read in the, in the longer account today in 2 Kings, all of the precious metals that make their way from the promised land to Babylon. And concerning the house of the Lord, where these vessels were used in worship, verse 19, they burned it. The house of God was burned and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Put yourself in this scene. and I mean, it was way uglier than what we have here. It was really, really bad. But you put yourself in that scene, and if you want words to describe it, read the book of Lamentations this afternoon, and you'll see one who stood in the rubble and wept. You'll hear the words of Jeremiah as he speaks over the destruction of, This was God's people. Now there's nothing. But we don't stand in the rubble, do we? We stand on this side of these events. And a good thing to circle in your Bible right here are two words that we find here in verse 19. The first is the word house, and the next is the word wall. Where is this story going It's going to be dealing with walls and it's going to be dealing with a house. So while we weep with Jeremiah and put ourselves back in that scene and sense what a horror this must have been on our side of it, we look at wall and we look at house and we begin to thrill to know what God is doing. But back to the king of Babylon, verse 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. And I think God wept. The temple King Solomon built is destroyed. The palaces he and King David built are destroyed. The castle has crumbled. And all of this destruction is in order to, verse 21, fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What on earth is that? The law, you remember, stipulated that every seventh year the land was to lay fallow. It was not to be tilled. It was not to be planted. It was to be left alone to just be on its own and to recover. Just like human beings need one day in seven. Some of you need to read into that and think about it. So 
the land needed one in seven. I'm not saying that that law applies today directly as such, but it is a principle, and it was a principle that they had not followed through the entire period of the monarchy. So if I read this properly, it's 70 times 7, or 490 years, which is essentially the period of time of the monarchy. They were not honoring the law of God in this regard, and so God says, we're just going to lump it all together. For 70 years, the land's going to be left fallow, generally. Not in absolute every inch of it, of course, but generally it was going to lay fallow to make up for what Israel had failed to do for so very long. From King Saul to King Zedekiah, the Sabbath rest on the land was realized. God's response, thirdly, in the last two verses of this chapter, he responds to Israel's discipline with a promise of restoration. And here's the hope of Scripture and the God we know. Here he is. He's starting to move. You look at this at this place, and this book ends at chapter 21, and there is absolutely no hope at all. But here he goes. 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. 539 B.C., Babylon was conquered by Cyrus, king of Persia. And he instituted a foreign policy in distinction from the Babylonians that sent all these displaced people who were sent into captivity. He liked to send them back home. And when he sent them back home, he said, have at it with your religion. Follow it. Go for it. I don't care. Bless the gods of your land is how he would look at it. But he sent them back in this this significant policy change. It went completely opposite of Babylon's approach. In fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, verse 23, which said this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, or fulfilling Jeremiah, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, Israelites in Babylon, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. End of book. You talk about a weird place to end, but it ends on this high note of go up there. Go back to Jerusalem. And you stand back in awe. The kings of Israel were history. They were all in the grave. The monarchy was done. The priesthood had been disbanded for 70 years. The temple was in ruins. Israel doesn't have a faith. They don't have anything but an identity. And a purified remnant would return to rebuild God's house. And I suspect that house is used as a subtle nod to more than just rebuild the temple. But we're talking again about house terminology, which brings us back to Davidic covenant and God's promise to build for David a house. There's no house operative on the throne of David right now. But you're going back up to build the house of the Lord, the house of David's dethroned, the house of Josiah had failed to keep 
the kingdom faithful. But God has promised to build David a house, and that promise is viable against all expectation. From everything that we would expect, Babylon has ended Israel. But may we never forget in this waking world that there's a God on heaven's throne. And it doesn't matter what kings or politicians decide to do. It doesn't matter what rogue states, how they determine to harm and to maim and destroy. What matters is that there's a God on heaven's throne. And at the center of his purposes is the salvation of his people. So God had promised to build David a house, and now against all these expectations, we end the book with, let him go up. Return, Israel, to the land. Build the temple. Construct the wall. Establish the nation again. The author is saying something more than let's pick up the pieces and try to rebuild. Rather, he seems to say that God's people are still God's people. We've been resting for 70 years in Babylon. But God's promises are yet to be trusted. God still sovereignly rules history. So as Isaiah the prophet had prophesied, Babylon would rise to power over Assyria. Absolutely unbelievable. People thought Isaiah was nuts. There is no way on earth this Babylonian kingdom will ever stand up against the Assyrian power. It can't happen. But it did. Jeremiah the prophet came along and said that Babylon would deport the Israelite populace to Babylon. That's not going to happen, but it did. And Jeremiah and Isaiah together prophesied that in just 70 years, Babylon would fall. And people hearing that prophecy said, no way is it going to go down that fast. I mean, that's it for a, for a kingdom. It's just like turning around and it's over that quickly. That can't be possible. But the prophets encouraged the people that there would be a return. And as we think of what God reveals about Himself in a passage such as this, and we think about who we are as His people in a very different era of salvation history, we can't work through this without recognizing that God is the author of history and the salvation of His people is at the heart of His purposes. This is true for time and eternity. This isn't something that's changed now that we live in a secular world and our part of the planet. God remains the author of history. This puts the incessant fight against the inroads of sin and weakness and travail into perspective. And I don't know what's washing up onto your castle right now today, but I guarantee something, somewhere, or it will soon. When we think of that, we must always come back, not to despair, but to the fact that there's a God who rules from heaven's throne and I'm at the center of his purposes, not because I've deserved it, not because I bought my way into it, because, but because that's who God is. 
So health and finances and family and disappointment and trials and suffering, it's a world filled with sin. And don't you get weary sometimes? Another problem? Another failure? This sin, this temptation, again, haven't I made any progress? But God is working out His purposes in it all, and we need to know that. For Israel, there was a day when the temple vessels would come home. There would be a day when God's people would return and rebuild the temple and reinstitute the priesthood and establish again the walls. But the waves of sin and weakness continue to break into the picture and swamp our every effort for good. It happened in Israel. It happens in our lives. But salvation history is headed toward the fulfillment of the motifs that emerge from this narrative. The kings were all gone. The concept of king was well alive. The priests had not functioned for a full generation, but the concept of priesthood was alive and well. The temple was in ruins. But the concept of temple and the worship of God was very much alive. These concepts of salvation themes do not go away. And the promises to David to seat a greater son upon his throne did not die. The kings died. But not the ruler of heaven and earth. So these themes, even though there is such great trial and problem and weakness in them... These themes point us to the ultimate son of David, the ultimate king, the final priest who creates a temple for his name from his people. Jesus is that prophet who fulfills the prophecy of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and he rises again. He is the priest, as Psalm 110 prophesies, verse 4, that he would be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Something different, something unique, and yet the theme fulfilled. He is the king, the son of David, so long ago prophesied what looks like it cannot be, but through in all of this, he fulfills these themes in himself, in his death, in his resurrection, as he for, forms a new and living temple, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of this, God is steering the ship, and he's just bringing us along and saying, now watch this, see how this develops, look where this goes. I've sent the prophets, they've told people what was going to happen, they've even told them when it's going to happen, and according to the script, the prophecies are fulfilled. I am on heaven's throne, and I love my people, and I will fulfill my every purpose and every theme, such as king, Priest, temple, is all pointing you to the fulfillment that I will bring in this world. And this assurance, secondly, of God's salvation plan makes the incessant fighting of sin and malady worth every effort. This puts the foundation of it under it. This gives it hope. This gives it realization and meaning. This narrative teaches us that God's patience must run its course or He could not be just. And that there is a day for every sinner when mercy ceases and justice takes over. We miss that from this account. We've really missed a lot. The God of the Bible is not merely 
a God of love. He is also a God of justice. And there is a day when his justice falls. And it, it is a call then to all of us to live a life of repentance. To know that God justly punishes sin. And so we must turn from our sin and seek what is right. Is he calling you today to that path uniquely? To identify and turn from sin in repentance. For those of us who have done that in the ultimate sense of trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of righteousness, as our justification, for those of us who have trusted that and understand who Christ is and that He is at the center of God's saving purposes, we might wonder sometimes even ourselves if it's worth the effort to keep fighting the waves. They just keep coming. Church, family, personal, money, health, circumstances. We live in a world filled with sin. Not going to get around that through any planning of ours. We're not going to get around that by being good people. But we wonder, is it worth it? This narrative fills me with the hope to say that it is. It is. Fight the ocean, but don't despair when the water overwhelms our small castles. The castles we build in this world are all temporal. They can't be anything else. Do your best in dependence upon the Lord to fight the invasion of sin, but do not put your hope in the sandcastle. And don't foolishly hope that all sin and trial and difficulty will go away if you just order things right or if you're just a little better. Put your hope in the living God and Savior. The fight will end. The fight ends as we're already seeing in its fulfillment in Christ. It ends when He establishes His kingdom and sin is put to rest. All enemies are chased out. And as we talked last week, as He stands at the hill of Megiddo, and puts to flight all the armies of this world. The kingdom of God comes, and all is put to rest. When he says, you will not pass to the powers of this world, he will win. And in that we hope. Equipping for the future is rooted to an understanding of the past. It's rooted to see, here's how God operates this is a long time removed from us. It goes way back in ancient history, but this is our God. This is the artist at work. This is the author and the king of the universe, and he's showing us how he operates. He's equipping us for our future as we root our understanding of who he is to the past. So what that fight looks like is an utter dependence upon the Lord day in and day out while we continue to practice repentance and obedience to His Word, knowing that His Word is our life. On those promises, we rest our hope. And in His counsel, we order our lives. There's all kinds of things that He says in His Word we don't like. They don't make sense. We don't even think they're true at first blush. But we learn that the word of the Lord has never failed. And we learn this unique skill as the followers of Christ of turning our minds, our thoughts, our dependence over to Him by submitting to what He has said. 
And when we listen to that counsel, he puts us on this path to walk in repentance of sin and in continual trust until he brings everything to the close that he has promised. In that hope, we press on. Press on, Christian. Press on. Keep fighting the water. Keep beating it back. Dealing with sin and dealing with the trials of this life is worth it because there's a king in heaven. He defeated death. He's coming again. And as he reigns today, he is our Savior and our Lord. In that we rest. Not in the circumstances of this life. Not in the temporal, but in the eternal. Set your hope there. Our Father, as we close out this time together, we thank you for it, and we thank you for your word and how rich it is, how much we miss, how much is there for our edification. But I pray that anyone here who is separated from Christ and does not follow him as Lord and Savior would recognize that all that is in Scripture and that all that is in history is pointing to Christ as the center of all things. I pray that you would bring to us an understanding of that, a reliance upon it, that we would walk in faithfulness to you and help us as we deal with the invasive nature of sin and malady and trial and disappointment of circumstances. I pray that you would help us in that to develop a perseverance, that this church would be fitted, even just by going through this text of Scripture and considering a passage that in so many churches would never be touched. I pray that you would reward this effort, and I pray that you would reward it in the lives of your people with a deep-seated, persevering trust that you are on heaven's throne, that you have proven time and time again that your promises are sure and amen in Christ. May we put down deep roots and rest in that, and may it show in the way that we live our lives that we're living for another land. We're living for another time. We are the citizens of a kingdom that is here and yet not here. But we long for that day of fulfillment, and we pray that you'd fit us for it. And bring with us, bring with us as we go up to heaven, bring with us some here who are not yet united to Christ. Bring them to repentance today. And may we journey together in faithfulness. Through Christ we pray. Amen.